chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 17, and then we're going to read through all of chapter 3. All right, so we're going to be reading through this, and there's going to be a few things I want to take away from it and, and encourage you to see, not just in the text, but also in who you are and where you are in your walk with Christ, where you stand in your faith, but also us as a church, us as a church, um, how we operate, and some things that you see in this text are things I want to encourage us all to, to abide by. So let's get straight to work. Chapter 2, verse 17 says this, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before Lord, our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to what? To establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about what? Your faith. For fear that someone, that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for the, all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Everybody's still awake, right? So I want to look at this text, and I want you to see, first and foremost, Paul is truly in love with the body of Christ in Thessalonica. Paul is loving these people that are very, very new believers. These people are young in faith. So if at any point I say today, these young believers, I mean, they may not have been young in age, but they are young in the faith of their of their walk with Christ. They are young in that age. So if I ever say young believers, just know it's not just for young people. It's for the young believers here in Thessalonica. So there's a few things that we can get from this text that should drive the way you and I operate as a church, but also as we operate as individuals. First and foremost, for Paul's, 
I mean, obvious reasons, we see his wholehearted devotion to these people. So you and I should operate with a wholehearted devotion for other people. But if we aren't careful, we will live very selfishly, and we will love people when it's convenient for us. Or we will love these people because they do these things for us. But the love that you and I ought to, ought to carry is a wholehearted devotion to one another. So if you go back into chapter 2, you see a few phrases by the Apostle Paul that shows his wholehearted devotion to these people. And we also know that Paul and his companions were driven from Thessalonica. Do you remember that? They were driven from Thessalonica because of the persecution, the opposition. And he even says, we were separated. We were torn away from you in body, but not what? Not in heart. So his heart is still with these people. So you see things like this, torn away in person, not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. And then he goes on to say, you are our glory and joy. It is evident that Paul is wholeheartedly devoted to these people. Paul invested his time with these people. And he's writing them because he wants them to know that he truly cares for them. He loves them. But he is somewhat concerned, as he sends Timothy is somewhat concerned about the fact that these people are new in their faith, and they're going to face two things that you and I face today. First, we see affliction. Paul wrote to them, and he says that, and he mentions the word affliction or conflict numerous times throughout this letter. And he's writing to a group of people who have witnessed himself be persecuted for the sake of the gospel, driven away from Thessalonica. And in fact, he says, when I could bear it no more, I had to send Timothy to you. Even though I could not return to you, I had to send Timothy to you, and I longed to see you. So we see Paul concerned about the fact that these people could be facing persecution or affliction. It's obvious, if you've lived a little while, that you and I will face affliction, is it not? Has anyone here ever suffered in the slightest bit? I mean... Yeah, we all have. We've all faced some form of affliction. And Paul's concern for these new believers is that they will, like so many people in today's world, believe that, well, if God truly loved me, I wouldn't suffer like I am. So what Paul's concern is that these people, through their conflicts, through their afflictions, through the persecution that they may endure, that they may actually lose their faith in Christ or walk away. So he's writing to them concerned about the afflictions that they may face. And here's what I encourage you to do. To not allow the afflictions that you face weaken your faith. But our hope is, my hope is, that over the course of our time together, whether that be the next few weeks, months, or many years, that you and I both will grow in our faith whenever we face affliction. So you always hear, well, if God was so good, why would he allow these things happen? And I hate to tell you, I don't have the answer. So if you were hoping that I would have all the answers, I hate to let you down. But it would be arrogant for me to tell you, I I know why God, I don't know. But I do know that if you've been a Christian for a little while, not even just a person on earth, but if you've been a Christian, you will suffer. And there are going to be times where you wonder why you are suffering the way you are suffering. And if God wouldn't just intervene, if God would just intervene, sometimes, guess what? He doesn't intervene the way that we want. 
So please, please, please hear me out. If you are here today and your life is great and things are going well, just be prepared that there may be a time in which you feel the heartaches of life. There's going to be a moment where your heart aches. If you've never been there, I'm telling you it's coming. Okay, But if you've been there, you know what these moments are like. You know what it's like to not be able to go to sleep at night. You know what it's like to have no strength to get up in the morning. And what I'm trying to tell you is that it is only by the grace of God that we can actually strengthen our faith through affliction. And Paul is concerned that he doesn't want them to weaken or to walk away from the Lord. And he says here that he can actually be comforted and he can live now that he knows they are standing fast in the Lord. He is comforted to know that through these afflictions, they are standing firm in Christ. The second thing is temptations. Because he talks about the tempter tempting them. If you and I have lived a little while as Christians, you and I know that whenever we decide to follow Christ, all of our temptations don't just magically go away, do they? Anyone ever here been tempted, even though you're a Christian? Tempted? Every day you're in traffic, you're tempted right? Every order that they get wrong, you're tempted. Every bill that comes in incorrect, you're tempted. Every time you see that spouse, you're tempted. Uh, Maybe just my home. But, But we all face temptations. Now, we all face little subtle temptations, right? To lose our temper in road rage or, or to be hateful with, with an uh, employee at a restaurant or a, or a telemarketer or, or the bill company. But then we also face those great temptations of going back to adultery or drunkenness or idolatry. Like we face grand temptations and we face small ones. And it doesn't matter how long you've been following Christ, there's still going to be temptations that you and I have to overcome. So the hopes is that Paul, is, he's writing these people in hopes that they would not allow the temptations that they face to make them stumble in their faith. Because if you and I are not careful, we will comfortably just give in to temptation after temptation after temptation, and that is not the life that God has called us to live. We cannot live, maybe this is just my opinion, so let me just state that. I think it's very irresponsible of us to call ourselves followers of Christ and then just comfortably live in temptation and know, well, I'll just ask for forgiveness afterwards. I believe that you and I ought to walk in step with the Spirit in such a way that we look and find the ways of escape that God provides us when we face temptation. Because if you aren't careful, that little temptation will grow and it will grow and it will grow. And then you will find yourself in divorce. You will find yourself in alcoholism. You will find yourself in drug addiction. You will find yourself in pornography addiction. I mean, there are so many things that can happen because of small little temptation after temptation after temptation. And then what you will find is that your life is crumbling apart. And it was all because of that little temptation that you had to feed and the cravings that you had to feed. So Paul is writing, hoping that they do not stumble or weaken in their faith because of affliction or temptation. The second thing I want to mention to you this morning is the courageous convictions that you and I ought to carry. The courageous convictions that you and I ought to carry. In verse 10... Paul says, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. This is almost like the Apostle Paul saying what we say sometimes with all due respect. Have you ever said that? With all due respect, 
and then you followed it with something that wasn't necessarily encouraging, but you were trying to give them positive you know, outlook or opinion. The Apostle Paul is saying in about six or, or about 12 verses prior to this one, hey, I love you. I can't wait to see you. I've heard great things about you, but I want to also be there because you may be lacking in your faith. I want to be there. I love you, and I've, gra- I've heard great things about you, but there are still comings that you have that we need to work through. And over the next few verses and chapters, we will see these things come out. In fact, that reminds me, I didn't mention it earlier, but next week, if you happen to just read the first few verses of chapter 4, you're going to see where our talk goes next week. So if you have younger slash kids, you might want to consider that and and send them to children's church unless you really want to have a conversation after church. Okay? And I'll just leave that up to you. As a parent, you decide. Use the wisdom of the Lord But the Apostle Paul is writing them saying, I love you and I've heard great things, but there are things that you may be lacking in your faith. So let me just ask you this. When you see people lack in their walk with Christ, do you just sit back and watch? Or are you willing to be courageous in your convictions knowing that they need to be corrected? There are times there are That people in your life, people that you love, people that you interact with on a daily basis, people that you see from time to time, comfortably live in sin. When those people that we care for just comfortably live in sin, but then claim to be Christ follower, devout in their faith, and their walk is the exact opposite of their claim, when they grow comfortable in that, you and I ought to grow uncomfortable. We ought to grow uncomfortable. Now, it's also very uncomfortable to confront someone living in their sinfulness, is it not? Because then we take on the risk of that person being mad at us. We take on the risk of that person never speaking to us again, making Facebook posts about us, or, or bashing our name from, from this person to that person. There is a chance that whenever I preach on a Sunday, there's going to be topics that may pierce your heart simply because you struggle with them. And if if you take it personally, like I am attacking you, then you will slander my name. You will slander our church. And, and we're all in that same boat. If I see you comfortably living in sin and I address it, I'm not trying to attack you or to, or to smack you in the face. It's correction that you may need. So even if that means you sit uncomfortable for a few minutes in a counseling session or in a church service, it it is a chance for you to hear the word of God or to be poured into by someone else so that you can be corrected and grow in your faith. I heard this saying this week. I don't know who said it, so I'm not going to quote it. But it says, "True true love speaks truth. That's simple. True love speaks truth. Meaning, when you see someone that you love and you truly love them, you would be willing to, to take on the risk of that person rejecting you or what you have to say so that they could be corrected in their walk with Christ. So my time here isn't just for you and me to have a good relationship and for me to be liked by you and, you like, and, and me like you. Part of our time here as, as a church, me as a, as a minister, is me preaching the full word of God, but also being willing to correct you. If you remember, why did Paul send Timothy? If you were reading on or if you were listening, to establish them and exhort them in their what? Faith. To establish and exhort So if we want to truly operate as Christ calls us to, as the early church did, 
then we must be willing to establish people, but then also exhort people in their faith. Meaning, if they start to wander, it is our responsibility to snatch them out of the fire, as Peter would write. If people begin to just comfortably live in their sinfulness, or, or live in addictions, or live in in darkness, it is our responsibility to preach to them, to reveal to them the truth of God's word so that they can be brought back into the light. One thing that I'll mention very briefly is at the very end of this chapter 3, Paul talks about their hearts being established by the Lord in, in holiness, being in blameless in holiness. And he says, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's reminding them of the coming day in which they will stand before the Lord face to face. Anybody here ready for that? I mean, are you genuinely ready to see the Lord face to face? And I can't help but to think Michaela's great grandma is 94 and probably going to be there like in the next, you know, maybe a few hours or days, however long it takes. But one thing that she's always been ready for is that. She may not have been ready for the weather changes. She may not have been ready for the, you know, political party shifts from one to the other or the policies of the country from one to the other or the increase or the inflation of gas prices or grocery bills, but she has been for roughly 80 years ready to see him face to face. Lastly, I want to mention what Paul writes or why Paul sends Timothy, and this is what I want to end with, because this is what I think is most important for you and me. Paul sends Timothy. Okay, let's just picture this. Paul is, is journeying around. He's preaching the gospel. He's sent away from Thessalonica because of great persecution. He's, he's being opposed. He's being threatened, and, and he's being attacked. So he, he jumps ship, and he, and he goes, and him and his comrades, they leave. And then because of not being able to spend enough time with them, he grows concerned because he's wondering, well, what are they doing now? I know they're probably being persecuted. Are they being strengthened in their faith? Are they wandering in darkness? Have they gone back to their old sinful lifestyles? Um, I mean, they're probably being tempted with one thing after another. Where, where are they? So Paul says, I could no longer bear it, so he sent Timothy. Timothy brought him good news of their what? Do you have your Bible? Of their faith and love. So the last thing I want to mention is the effectiveness of this establishment that Paul created. Which should be the same effectiveness that you and I measure by today. So when Timothy comes back to Paul and Paul writes to them, This is what Paul does not say. Paul does not say that Timothy has brought us good news of the expansion or the growth of your church. Do you notice that? He does not say, Timothy brought us good news of all of the programs that you have to offer. See, those are two things that drive the American church, do they not? We want to be attractive. We want people to come because they think we're attractive as a church or they think all the programs we have or they're hearing about the church growing. These things are not bad in and of themselves. Okay, these things are not bad. And I will be honest, when I first got into ministry, I thought that the more the church grew numerically, the better we were. I thought, well, if we're growing, then God's got to be doing something. But there are many big churches growing like crazy that do not glorify the God of the Bible. There are many great Speakers, communicators put on huge platforms that truly do not preach 
the gospel of Christ. So what were the measuring markers of success for the Apostle Paul, and what are they for you and I? Like I mentioned earlier in my ministry, I thought if the church continued to grow, if we bring more and more people in here, we must be doing something right. If we can offer this program and that program and reach this people and this generation, then we must be doing something right. These are not bad things by any means, but these are not the measuring markers of effectiveness as a church. We ought to see your faith. This is what Timothy brought back to Paul. I went and I was able to witness them living out their faith. They lived in holiness. They lived with love. They, they sacrificed for one another. They gave. They were generous. They, they served. And, and their faith was evident in all of their conduct. So let me just ask you, if somebody watched you for the next seven days, would your faith be evident? Or would you have to tell someone, hey, I really am a Christian. Hey, I really do believe in Jesus. Is your faith evident in all your conduct? Not just your Sunday morning, but all your conduct. So Timothy goes and he writes, Paul writes to them, I have heard this great news of your faith. So what was able to bring them to this point? It was the way in which Paul established this church which must be the same way you and I establish this church, the way that it has been established for years and years and years, and the way that it will be sustained for as long as this building stands. See, Paul preached the cross of Christ. That's what he preached. Paul preached the cross of Christ. Every area of our functionality ought to be centered around the cross of of Christ, the gospel of Jesus. Paul preached to them the full gospel that apart from Christ, you and I are destined to hell. I mean, that's the true gospel. Apart from Christ, we are destined to hell. But because of Christ, you and I can be reconciled to him. We can be made alive. We can be born again, and we can have everlasting life. Because of Christ, someone like me who was once dead in my sins and trespasses can be raised to life. I can see my creator for all of eternity because of Christ. But apart from Christ, if I just live in my sinfulness, guess what? I will be sentenced rightfully to eternal separation in a place we call as hell. That's what Paul proclaims. That through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, that is our hope. Peter wrote, as Bill just read, we are given this everlasting hope through what? The resurrection of the dead. We must, in all areas of our functionality, whether that be in our children's ministry, whether that be in our Sunday school classes, whether that be in our life groups or our Bible study settings, we must all preach the gospel of Christ and the full counsel of God's word. So whenever it comes to a weekly service, it is shame on me and it is us failing to do our responsibility for me to try and to preach self-help for you so that you can feel better about yourself when you leave here. It is shame on me if I try to tell you, hey, just, you know, just dust your knees off and try it again tomorrow, and if you fall down, it's okay. It's shameful for me to preach anything but the full counsel of God's word, which tells us, apart from Christ, we are dead and destined to hell. But because of Christ, we can be forever 
welcomed into his presence. And we can be made alive. And we can have hope. Not just whenever we die one day, I'll be able to live and walk the streets of gold. But I can have a faith in Christ that strengthens me now. Even through my afflictions and even when I am tempted, I can have the strength of the Lord. See, here's the thing. When I preach to you about, you know, overcoming stress or dealing with anxiety, those things are great. But it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can strengthen you for what you face in life. Because if you've lived a little while, you've faced some things. You've endured some trials. You've been maybe kept up late at night, or you've wondered or struggled or or worried about what tomorrow looks like. See, it's only by the grace of God through the Spirit of God that you and I can have hope when we lay in a hospital bed, when we walk into funeral homes, when our finances are spiraling out of control, when our kids are living in rebellion, whenever our spouse is going one way and we're going the other. Like, there is only hope found in Christ. If we preach anything else or if we try to teach anything else, then what we will do is we will fail you as the body. Because our programs, our church growth and attendance numbers, or self-help messages will make you maybe feel good for a couple of days, but they are not what strengthens you through all of the various afflictions that you may face. So the measuring markers of our success is actually witnessed in the holiness and in the conduct of our people. We ought to see your faith at work. We ought to see the hope that you have in Christ dictate and drive the way that you live. So the question is that I pose for you today is this. If someone followed you for the next week and now you don't be on your best behavior, right? You remember those times when mom or dad would say, hey, got to clean the house because so-and-so's coming over or we've got company coming over. You remember those moments where you clean things that you only clean like once a year? Because so-and-so is coming over, or we've got to prepare the meal. Now, there are times where we can be on our best behavior, right? There are times that you and I can change who we are because of the people that may be around us for a temporary period of time. So if someone followed you, and you lived this next week just how you lived this last week, would your faith be evident? See, Timothy brings back to Paul a report of good news that these people truly are the people that we established in Christ? Or would people see in you a walking hypocrite that fails to walk in the faith they may proclaim publicly? Does your faith bring evidence to what you claim? That is how We measure our success as a church that you and I would conduct ourselves as holy and blameless. Now, I know you're not going to be perfect. None of you are perfect. So if you've never heard that, let me tell you again. You are far from perfect. You're far from perfect. I am far from perfect. But my life ought to to reflect the hunger and the thirst for righteousness that I should desire as a born-again believer of Christ. If you are a born again believer of Christ, your life should be driven by your hunger and thirst for righteousness. Therefore, your faith is evident in the people around you. So today as we close and as we get ready to, to go home, 
let me just ask you again. If someone followed you for the next seven days and documented how you spoke, the websites you visited, the way you spend your money, if they've watched the way that you handled situations, if they watched how you interacted with your spouse or with your kids or with complete strangers, if they watched the way you spent your time, would your faith bring evidence of the one who has called you? If you remember, Peter also wrote not just about an everlasting hope, but he said that you and I who have been called by God ought to be holy because he is holy. You and I should strive to be holy holy in all our conduct. Let's pray.